All right, well, it's a privilege every week to get to do this. Do you mind turning me down a little bit? I think I'm hot, I'm sorry. Uh, it is, it's every week. Um, you guys don't know this, but, but I, I, we print the bulletins at the house because we don't have an office. I work at the house. We have a, a, like an office printer. We print the bulletins, and I, I get the privilege of stapling them every week, which is not a burden. It's a privilege because every time I do it, I just think, how, how is this possible that we get to do this thing? And um, so every time, I, every time I fold these, I'm thinking about you guys, and, and it's, just, uh, it's just a gift. So thank you for this privilege. If you're joining us, uh, you'll know we're in our second week of, of Advent, of our Advent study, and we are looking at the ways that the Old Testament is training us to watch for a promised baby boy. So last week, we talked about the three sons born to the patriarchs who were uh, promised to barren women, who God gave, who foreshadowed the way that God would supply a king. So promised Genesis 17, God promises Abraham, I will give kings to you through, not Hagar, but through Sarah, making it all the more miraculous because it would be proven that it's God doing the work because he can't, Abraham can't conspire to produce an heir. It has to be the work of the Lord. The pattern repeats itself through Isaac and then through Jacob, and then we finally have the, uh, the blessing of the people of Israel, um, and they, they are... They are saved and, and preserved in Egypt because of the miraculous son which God gives to Jacob's wife, Joseph, right? So this week we look at another son, a sort of anti-type, actually. We're looking at the promise of a deliverer, waiting on Manoah's son. This is Samson. And Samson, by all accounts, is an anti-hero, right? Maybe that's who Taylor Swift wrote the song about. So if you have your Bibles, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. We'll see why Samson is in the hall of faith, but he's not someone that we should necessarily seek to emulate, but he's someone that proves that our deliverance is going to have to come from outside of ourselves, that we are in a problem that we can't solve ourselves. So if you have your Bibles, open to the book of Judges chapter 13. Judges is the seventh book of the Bible, and I'll just... I'll make, a, I'll make a point to you. Feel free to use your table of contents. The, the big number that you see on the page is the chapter. The little number is the verse. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have plenty on the cart there. You can interrupt us or you can wave your hand. Somebody will go get you a Bible. We'd love to uh, give you a copy of God's Word that you could take home. But the theme, again, of our study of this month is that we cannot save ourselves. We've gotten ourselves into a problem we will not be able to fix and we can't save ourselves from the problem, the mess we've made. And we today are going to see, we have to recognize that sometimes the things that we perceive as strengths are actually some of our greatest liabilities. Because they might trick us into thinking that we can save ourselves. So sometimes our strengths, our greatest perceived strengths are actually liabilities because they can trick us into thinking that we can solve our own problems. There's a new, um, a, a new Ridley Scott biopic out um, on Napoleon, and uh, it's a biopic about the military genius who, this is not an exaggeration, is almost single-handedly responsible for Billings, Montana, St. Louis, Missouri, Popeye's Chicken, the end of the political domination of the Roman Catholic Church, and the unification of Poland, Germany, and Italy. Napoleon is an incredibly consequential figure in European history. 
and in American history because he sells Louisiana to Thomas Jefferson. So thank you because I love Popeye's chicken. <laughs> and the resume of Napoleon Bonaparte could go on. One of the things that the movie changes most, among a lot of things I've read, is that one of Napoleon's greatest blunders comes from his overconfidence in his own strength. Napoleon ultimately meets his defeat in Imperial Russia, not because the Russians are remarkable, but because they have remarkable winters. And it's in the wake of a scorched earth retreat from Moscow, which he takes. Napoleon takes Moscow, and he retreats, which leaves him exposed to starvation and disease, ultimately destroying his grand army. But Napoleon, unlike another 20th century dictatorial figure who marches into Russia, has not done so blindly. And this is where his perceived strength became a liability, because he studied the, the failed invasion of the Swedes into Russia in this prior century, and he knew that he would have to have logistical support in order to make this happen. So he established factories on the front line, which could, one factory alone, could produce in the Danzig, which is in Poland today, could produce 60,000 biscuits a day. There's no factories back then. It's just that many people making biscuits. The problem was is that his, his initial victories in Poland, as he got closer and closer to Russia, began to trick Napoleon into thinking, I'm strong enough to do this on my own without the systems that are around me to support me. He chases the Russians deeper and deeper into their territory, and their grand, the Grand Army's speed and mobility ends up becoming his greatest liability because even though he has, he's got 20 battalions just for supply, he moves faster than them, cutting through the Russian flanks, but he, he moves faster than them to where he's in Moscow. He takes Moscow, which has never happened before or since, and he's completely exposed. His greatest strength became his liability he, he entered Russia with 60,000 troops, and he, he retreated with only 100,000, a colossal failure. How does perceived strength become a liability? A, per, a perceived strength becomes a liability when it blinds us to our own weaknesses. Napoleon's, again, his earliest victories blinded him to his need to stick with his original planning. His logistical planning was on point, but he missed the boat because of his initial successes. So here's some questions for us, diagnostic questions for us. In what ways have our perceived strengths become liabilities to us? In what ways has your charisma, your intelligence, your net worth become a liability to you? In what ways maybe have we thought what we bring to the table is more important than what we need from God to bring to the table? Do we think that when we approach God that we bring everything that we need, and like, here I am, Lord, here's what I've got, do something with it. Or do we come to the table and say, here's everything I lack? And here's our problem, I think. Our, our struggle is to understand and accept that it's God's power ultimately that works through our weaknesses, not our strengths. And our human tendencies to rely on physical strength or visible proofs of strength for deliverance. And then there's, we have a difficulty in in accepting in our lives that it's through suffering and surrender that we have true godly salvation and deliverance. Today we'll see that we are at our best when we're waiting patiently on the Lord to deliver and not relying on our own power. 
And that's the story of Samson in a nutshell. When we look at Samson's life, we're going to see somebody who seems to have a resume of just this remarkable talent bank that actually becomes his greatest liability, and it makes him misunderstand who he really is until the very end. The first thing that I'd love us to see today as we open up again, Judges chapter 13, is that God is working even when we don't see the results. Would you read with me Judges chapter 13, verses uh, 2 through 14? Judges 13, 2 through 14. Well, actually, we'll read read verses 1, uh, verse 1 as well. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Mark number one, remember last week. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you will conceive, you shall conceive and bear a son. Mark two, remember last week, right? Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he, came from, or where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of the Lord came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and spoke to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what will be this child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, Neither let her drink wine or strong drink or any unclean thing. All that I've commanded her, let her observe. The birth announcement of Samson occurs within a tragic cycle of repentance and apostasy within the life of Israel. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, there's a cycle where you have repentance, you have, you have establishment, and you have apostasy. And you have repentance and apostasy. It's just a history of how people continually fall short of their side of the covenant with Yahweh. And God is faithful to his people and to his promise in spite of their actions and unfaithfulness. When Samson's birth is announced, Israel's under Philistine occupation. Remind you, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. One of the remarkable facts of the Bible is that one who is over the nations, right, uh, is the one who's over the nations which will occupy and control the Israelites. Nothing happens to God's people apart from God's command or control. That's where we get our first point from. 
We want to trust the Lord is working even we don't see the results. If you were to take the temperature, so to speak, of Israel under Philistinian occupation, we might think things are dire. I'll suggest the text doesn't suggest people feel that way, but we, we would encourage them that they would need to trust that God is working even when you don't see what's happening or you don't even see the whole picture because it's God himself who has caused the Philistines to occupy. So from the Israelite perspective, one might think that the Lord is not working, but he clearly is because he's the one who invited the occupation and his announcement to Samson's mother makes this plain. Notice how similar also to the narratives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this narrative right here in Judges 13 is. There's a couple of inversions which are going to be key to interpretation, but I'm not going to highlight those yet. Let's look at the similarities. The first is we have the barrenness of the boy's mother. She's unnamed, and that's, I think, interpretively important. In Genesis, we know the names of the mother, right? We have, we have Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. We know their names, right? We have an angelic promise of a child. We have information about the child's mission, what the child will do. He's going to live under a Nazarite vow. And the Lord's, right, the Lord is going to bring this child into existence. This isn't going to be a child which, like uh, Hagar and Abraham, they bring in uh, by their own power. This is going to be a child that the Lord provides. But again, inversions are key to the interpretation because they clarify for us when we look back at a 30,000-foot view, which we're doing again today, looking at the whole life of Samson instead of just a few passages like is our normal pattern, that we'll see that there's, there's something wrong in this story. And it's even wrong compared to Genesis 17, Genesis 25, and, and other passages in Genesis. Right? To, that clarify for us that Samson is not the boy we're waiting for. I'll remind you again, one of the reasons that there are so many genealogies in the Bible is that going back to Genesis 3.15, everybody's waiting on a baby. God promises that one of the offspring of Eve will be born, and that offspring will crush the serpent's head. So everybody's waiting on who's the baby boy that's going to do this work. And we're going to learn through Samson's life, but even the keys of this initial introduction, Samson's not the one we're going to wait for. He's not the boy that's going to crush the serpent's head. And one of the ways you see is this, the inversion of the, the leadership that should be happening. The priority of the women in this narrative, as well as all of Judges, shows just how depraved the situation in Israel has become. And that's not because women shouldn't lead in godliness. But it's clear that Manoah is not the leader that he ought to be. It's not, again, that, that she is exercising any leadership at all. It's that he is not in the slightest bit. He doesn't even seem interested in exercising leadership. He's the one who asks the Lord to send the angel again because he doesn't trust the announcement from God. He doesn't trust. And when he's not, he's not even with his wife when the angel reappears. Remember, he asked the Lord, send the man back, and he's not even waiting on God to actually do it. He's not with his wife when the angel comes back. We also don't know the name of Samson's mother, which is odd. That's, an in, that's another inversion, because in most of the biblical texts, we would know the mother's name. But that inversion, commentators suggest, is because if you know the story of Samson, uh, Samson has a, a womanizing problem. He sins with women. 
and that's a problem for him. So there are, again, these clues from the beginning that Samson's life will not turn out as it should. He's the boy that they're hoping will deliver the people from the hands of the Philistines, and yet he's not the one who will ultimately be the one who delivers Israel finally. We're still going to be waiting on another boy, another deliverer. As Jim Hamilton points out about this text, too, some other damning facts which indicate this is not right, something is wrong here. The people are not calling out for deliverance. What's absent from verse 1 of chapter 13? What's absent is the people saying, Lord, save us from the hand of the Philistines. They don't seem to care. And in fact, we'll see later in Judges 14 and 15, they actually begin to get upset when Samson begins to act in a way that upsets the status quo. And they want to bind him so they don't have problems with the Philistines. And additionally, the other thing that's odd is that the parents are not seeking a child. They're not even seeking a child. Manoah's wife is barren, and they're not praying for a son to fulfill the promises, which is odd because all of the other barren women in Scripture are praying for a son. She's not. text doesn't tell us why. It just tells us something about this narrative is off. Things are bleak, in other words, in Israel. Which brings us to our next point that God often acts in spite of our actions and not because of them. Human beings rarely have the hand to force, rarely have the ability to force the hand of God. God tends to act in spite of us and not because of us. If, if you have a genuine Christian testimony, if you have a genuine Christian testimony, it probably has at least two key marks. It's a good evaluative mark to know. Like, is this true? Do I really have a true profession of faith? The first is that you were on a trajectory or path moving away from God. You were on your way away from God. You may have been actively destroying yourself or even just maybe you were younger and you were acutely aware of your heart's gladness, its eagerness, its quickness to disobey and rebel against God. Maybe you even noticed it that you, for example, kids, you didn't want to obey your parents. Right? You were on some trajectory or future apart from God and then, Mark 2, God interrupts that trajectory when you weren't necessarily looking for it. And he opens your eyes to his marvelous grace, and it's at a moment when you weren't expecting him to. My moment was I was playing dodgeball at Whitesburg Baptist Church, and a dodgeball hits me in the face. I get real angry because I'm an angry child at the time. I kind of storm out uh, because I'm also like... a. I'm, I've, I'm a loser. I have a bad attitude at this point of my life. I'm terrible. And, uh, and I, so I storm out, and people chase me, and then they continue to love me that whole weekend, even though I just have a bad attitude. And uh, the question I keep asking this whole weekend is, why do these people care so much? Like, why, why do they care? And that is the first moment when I begin to awaken to grace, to sovereign grace, and see I was going this way, but the Lord interrupts my path and sends me this way. None of us probably have been visited by the Lord Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus, literally. But all of us, if we have a genuine Christian testimony, we're on our own roads to Damascus when the Lord interrupts our path and says, no more, your heart is mine now. Dead people cannot do this. They don't seek their own vivification. It's too late for dead people, right? Remember what Ephesians 2 said. It's while we were dead that Christ died for us. And apart from Christ, it's already too late for us. But 
He very graciously interrupts each of us in our deadness to make us alive together with him. And Samson's life is no different. Samson's parents seem so unfazed by this announcement that Samson's dad goes back to doing whatever he was doing. So he's not with his wife when the angel comes back. He just doesn't care. Judges 13.5, there's this announcement that this boy will begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines, and Samson's dad can't be bothered to be with Samson's mother. He just goes off somewhere. It's also clear from Judges 13 that God is delivering his people even when they aren't asking him to. This is an odd part of Scripture as well, because if, if you've not been with us for a while, you, you don't know, but we've been preaching through the book of Exodus. And one of the themes is that the people cry out, Lord, save us, so the Lord saves. But here God is acting in spite of them. Now let's pause and ask this question. If God will work to save people who don't even know better than to ask, we certainly, we certainly should not give up our efforts to pray for people that we know need to know the Lord. These people don't know better to ask. Maybe they do. Maybe they're suppressing it. Um, so they're not asking. But certainly you and I know to ask, and we should ask. We should be pleading with the Lord. And this is a word to Zach even. We should be pleading with the Lord, Lord, save these people. Bring them to yourself. So this boy, he's going to have a Nazarite vow. What in the world is a Nazarite vow? One of the interesting features of Samson's life is this imposition of a Nazarite vow. You'll remember that the Nazarite vow is voluntary. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, turn to Numbers chapter 6. Number 6 is towards the beginning of your Bible. During the period of dedication... Uh, a Nazarite vow is a voluntary vow that somebody could take on themselves. They could volunteer to do this, and they would set themselves apart for God for a particular season of time. And the instructions for that are in Numbers 6, 1 through 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 2 of number 6, Speak to the Lord, the people of Israel, and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, he shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drinks. Now uh, shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is complete for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. This is a voluntary and temporal vow that was taken, ordinarily. But uniquely, Samson's Nazarite vow is imposed on him. He's just told, his mother's just told, this baby will be a Nazarite. And by the way, like you still, you as well, will have the Nazarite obligations. God has thrust this vow upon him. Benjamin Johnson noted in what I feel like is an unintentional allusion to Christopher Nolan's masterpiece, The Dark Knight, that Samson is, the, is a Nazarite, the judge that Israel, quote, quote, the judge that Israel needed, but not the one they deserved, end quote. Uh, Samson is the anti-hero. He is the judge that they deserve, but not the one that they need. Samson, by all marks, is a flawed hero. 
He fails to keep up his end of the vow, as we'll see in a minute. He repeatedly falls into temptation with illicit women, and yet God will still deliver his people because God is faithful to his promises, which is great news for us because it means when we don't keep up our end of the bargain that God keeps up his end of the bargain. And anyone who believes in Christ will be saved. And we fail to be faithful. Our next point, we fail to be faithful and we misunderstand our source of strength. So God's always working. That's true. He's often working in spite of us, but we enter the equation where we fail to be faithful. We misunderstand our source of strength. You guys remember Napoleon, again, he studied the Swedes' disastrous invasion into Russia because he realized that uh, he needed to set up this operation, yet those early successes made him overconfident and he moved faster than his logistical operations could keep up. He misunderstood the nature of his strength. We learn about Samson's womanizing and his lack of self-control throughout the book of Judges. This isn't a sermon on Samson in that regard, so I won't go through those details. But we're trying to see again how the Old Testament anticipates the gift of a son and anticipates mainly the gift of Jesus Christ. So I want to highlight just a few of these features. Samson, again, I believe, misunderstands the source and meaning of his strength. Incredibly, we don't actually have a physical description of Samson. If I asked you right now to just draw a picture of Samson, you would probably draw the Incredible Hulk. But the Bible actually doesn't give us those details. It doesn't tell us at all that he had an imposing physical character or build or physique. In fact, the only thing we're told about his appearance is that he wore his hair in seven locks. Uh, when I asked just to just see, just as an exercise, just ask ChatGPT, draw me a picture of, you know, uh, uh, of, of Samson, and he just produced, or it, I suppose, produced uh, Hercules's, right? The Bible actually doesn't say anything like that. It actually seems to suggest the, the opposite. His strength is actually a genuine mystery to the Philistines. It's a mystery to the Philistines in Judges 15 why a single man would have picked a fight with an entire group of people over a woman and then could have also caused so much devastation as a result of it. It's a mystery to Judah, right? to the, to the whole tribe of Judah, who this random guy is who causes problems with this whole nation, so much so that they don't want to leverage him. He's a liability, so they want to actually bind him and give him up. They don't, have a, they don't see in him a champion like Goliath. Like, who are you? Verse 12 of 15, they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we might give you into the hands of the Philistines. Commentators point at this and they say, so there must have not been something obviously strong about Samson. Otherwise, they would have put him in a Goliath situation. It's also such a mystery to the Philistines that they conspire with Delilah to figure out his strength. One commentator points out, no one walks up to Goliath and asks Goliath, Goliath, what's the source of your strength? It's obvious what his strength is. It's a serious question. Who, like, who is empowering you? Where is your strength coming from? Samson. Again, I think the text shows us that Samson's strength comes not from his physique and his build, but in his set-apartness to God. Notice, for example, at very key moments, Samson is not strong enough to deliver himself, and he has to ask God to do things. Judges 15.4, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that caught fire, and his bonds melted off of his hands. May I just submit to you that it's the Lord that breaks the flax ropes, Judges 15. If he was strong enough, he might have just popped them loose. But the Spirit of the Lord is what does that. Judges 15, 14, fact check maybe, Berean. Judges 15, 18, he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your, your servant, and I shall now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. Saying, Lord, like you have to even just give me water. I'm not even strong enough to do this on my own. You've done this great work. Now, I still need your help. Samson breaks in front of Delilah. Again, we're skipping that part because that's not the main, main point of our text. He breaks in front of Delilah, sharing that his strength lies not in his physique, but in his set-apartness when he's finally pressed by Delilah. Remember, he tricks her. He's like, if, if you put these certain ropes on me, if you tie it this way, ultimately, Judges 16, 17, hear what he shares. After, excuse me, and he told her all his heart, and said to her, quote, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Samson's strength was not in his physique, but in his set-apartness, his holiness to God. And it's in that moment that he trades his identity for a temporary moment with Delilah. And in this way, he shows us that he's not the long-awaited baby who's going to actually save. We're still waiting on a different baby who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He is just like any other man, Samson is. We still are waiting for a deliverer who will, Judges 13:5 save Israel. This is the thing about God. This is our next point. God ordinarily chooses weak things to demonstrate his strength. If we needed more clues about the source of Samson's strength, it's at his weakest that we actually see the true strength of Samson and where his power really comes from. It's from his dependence on the Lord. If you have your Bibles again, turn now to Judges 16. We've looked at the beginning, the opening of Samson's life, which shows us he's been set apart, called by God. We've looked at the middle to show that he misunderstands his strength. Everybody's like, where's this coming from? And in the, the close of his life, we actually see where his strength comes from. Judges chapter 16. I'm going to read eight verses from 23 to 31. Now the Lord of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to Dagon, their God and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And their hearts were merry. They called, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young men who had held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars of which this house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. What does the text say? It's to say, and Samson flexed and he pressed. Samson had just maxed out last week, so he had a new PR. He was ready to roll. He had just taken dry creatine. No. Verse 28, Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. 
And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them with his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He bowed with all of his strength. The house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. And his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zoar and Nestal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. It's a remarkable story, which tells us again that Samson's strength doesn't come from himself, but it comes from the Lord. His final act of deliverance is his dependence on the Lord, which brings the whole house down. It was never even about his hair, you see. It was about his dedication to the Lord represented in the hair. God had initiated this whole thing independent of human action. No one had, had even asked for a deliverer. These people weren't even seeking a deliverer. No one had volunteered to take the Nazarite vow, and yet God determined that he would save his people. I invite us to identify areas in our life. Where are we? Where are we relying on our strength? Maybe thinking that the locks of our hair, whatever it is for you, whatever it is for you, that we're relying on those more than we're relying on the strength of the Lord. We need to remember that Samson's strength comes ultimately from his dependence of the Lord. But of course, we can't talk about a sacrificial death which brings about, in part, the deliverance of the people of Israel without looking at the one who ultimately is miraculously given, whose strength comes from the Lord, and who goes to death and swallows death into himself, breaking death's back. We'll talk about Jesus' birth many times over the next couple weeks, but certainly remember that he's the promised one, promised to a woman who would not be able to have a child naturally, right? Being the Virgin Mary. And what's the promise about this baby? He will save the people. So what will his name be? Jesus Hebrew for God saves. Jesus Christ is this perfect priest, this perfect deliverer who at his last moments relies on the strength of the Lord, who goes to the cross and kills death in his death, who delivers his people ultimately through his sacrificial death, who shows us, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, that God chooses what is weak to shame the proud, in what ways are you relying on things the world thinks are strong? That what you bring to the table, thinking of your own physique, what you're bringing to the table, and in what ways would you need to crucify that? Show my help does not come from me, my help comes from the Lord. There's a great contrast between human strength and God's power. And I pray that God would give us the eyes to see that we ought to depend and, and pray for God's strength more than we'd ever rest on our own abilities or our own power. We're going to need a deliverer in, in the Old Testament looking for it. These people are going to need a future deliverer. But we have that deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give up pretenses that you can manage your own life, that you can save yourself, that you are strong enough to grit through. Give that up. That's, that's a charade. Give it up. And trust the Lord and all that he has done to conspire heaven to bring you to himself. Will you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would help 
expose us to the ways that we're trusting our own strength, that we're looking to our charisma, our gifting, our, our net worth to think about how we're going to save ourselves. And Lord, would you teach us again afresh that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves and that ultimately, in every respect, we are dependent on you for all things. Lord, if there are people here who are still suffering under the weight of their own strength, of their own of their, of their slavery to themselves, Lord, would you liberate them and show them that their true strength lies in their weakness and their inabilities are the place where you intend to show your greatest strength and really bless the nations through that. We pray, God, that you might even save someone today. We ask that all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.